Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to uh, the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura. I am here with TJ Daw and TJ Ingracia. And today we're going to be doing our next installment of the Marvel series, talking about two movies in particular, The Avengers Age of Ultron and Black Widow. Guys, how are you doing today? Doing just great here. Doing fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're off to a talkative start from the TJs here, but I'm sure they're going to have a lot to say as we um, as, as we get into these movies. So what we've been doing for these episodes is, uh, or what we're doing for these episodes is to pair uh, different movies. Last time we talked about Iron Man and the Avengers, and uh, this time we're picking two movies that we do think are related to each other in a specific way. So TJ Daw, tell us why we put these two movies together for our conversation. Avengers Age of Ultron is the next movie sequentially in the Avengers movies overall. So there's that reason. And then Black Widow looks specifically at Black Widow. So what we're doing with these episodes is we're looking at one team movie and one individual movie and using that as a lens to look at the individual featured in that individual movie in particular. And I don't know that there's a movie that showcases Black Widow more than Black Widow. And she has a few (laughs) important scenes in Avengers Age of Ultron. So that seemed like a good fit to me. I think, too, as I was rewatching these movies, I noticed how much of them is about identity. Uh, Who am I from an existential perspective is a really heavy theme in both of these movies. Now, I think that's that's something that comes up through almost all superhero movies, right? There's always that issue of what is my identity, um, you know, and a true identity and a, and a kind of public identity as, as well. But it really struck me with the pairing of these two movies. Why don't we jump right into it and start off with Age of Ultron or the Avengers Age of Ultron. TJ Ingracia, tell us about that movie. All right. So the film opens in the fictional Eastern European country of Sokovia, where the Avengers are gathered for a raid on a Hydra facility. Now, in the Marvel Universe, Hydra is a scientific research slash terrorist organization that was originally founded by Hitler during World War II. And uh, they are using Loki's scepter, which we talked about in the last episode during uh, the Avengers film. They're using that to do some human experimentation. So the Avengers are trying to put a stop to that. Uh, During this raid, the Avengers encounter the twins, Pietro and Wanda Maximoff, who are a a pair of twins who have volunteered for the experimentation. They've been given some special powers. And at this point in the film, they are antagonists to the Avengers. So eventually, the Avengers, of course, they get the scepter. They bring it back to the U.S. Tony Stark discovers that the scepter contains a gem that is powered by some kind of an artificial intelligence. And he convinces Bruce Banner to help him harness this power for his Ultron global defense plan, uh, which he calls a suit of armor around the world. His goal is to make the Avengers obsolete. What could possibly go wrong, right? (laughs) So Ultron, uh, voiced by the always interesting James Spader, uh, becomes self-aware and immediately turns hostile 
decides that the only way to save Earth is to actually wipe out all of humanity. So from this point forward, the film follows more or less sort of a, a similar kind of theme as the first Avengers film. There's this powerful enemy who wants to destroy the world, and their plan to defeat the Avengers is not to use brute force necessarily, but to tear the team apart. So it's, you know, can this team come together and figure out how to defeat the enemy as a team? So part of Ultron's plan is to evolve himself by moving his consciousness from his robotic body into a new body composed of a special synthetic tissue uh, infused with vibranium, which is the strongest metal in the Marvel Universe. The Avengers eventually steal this new body before he can upload his consciousness, and Tony Stark, who apparently hasn't learned his lesson from the first time around, wants to use this new body to upload his own artificial intelligence, called Jarvis, uh, into the body so that he can create a, an entity that can fight Ultron. So he succeeds in doing this, and while the Avengers are initially skeptical of Tony's vision, that's the name of this new character, Vision, he ultimately wins their trust by lifting Thor's hammer, thus proving that he is worthy to wield the gem, the Mind Stone, and be on their team. So together uh, with Vision and now the Maximoff twins who have joined the Avengers once they realize that Ultron is actually going to destroy the world, they fly back to Sokovia for the battle with Ultron, uh, many explosions and speeches and heroic moments later, they save the world and peace is once again restored. Cue the music. Excellent. <laughs> Cue the music, yes. Uh, good. TJ Dahl, anything you would add to that? Any observations or reflections on the movie from you? I fully enjoyed it when I saw it in the theaters and have enjoyed it watching it since. It's not great. It did perfectly well. It wasn't a bomb, but it's not one of the movies that's better remembered in the canon of Marvel movies among people who watch them and love them. But I think it's a perfectly serviceable popcorn movie. Yeah. TJ Ingrassia, feelings on the movie itself, the quality of it? And yeah, I, I think I agree with that. It's not on my probably top five, you know, top 10, maybe. I mean, there's like 87 of these movies. So it's, you know, <laughs> top 10 is a, is a tough list to begin with. Right. Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed it, especially since his appearance on The Office. I've had an appreciation for James Spader and just sort of his unique. Uh, he's almost, he's kind of like a, um, like a Christopher Walken kind of a character, just a very unique oh. voice, very unique delivery. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a fine film, but nothing to uh, write home about, I'd say. So uh, on James Spader, I think he was perfectly cast for this, right? I think that his voice really, really works well and not just his voice itself, but the weariness of his voice and, uh, the quirkiness that, you know, I, I like your Christopher Walken reference there. I feel similarly about the age of Ultron. I remember seeing it in the theater and one thing I noticed watching it on my television, even though it is a 65 inch television, I think, is that it is a big screen kind of movie, as many of these Marvel movies are, right? When you're watching some of these fight scenes and these battle scenes that are so uh, uh, thrilling and exciting on the big screen, they, you know, on a smaller screen, they can feel kind of clunky and, you know, clumsy and that sort of thing. I'll also say, that uh, I watched it twice in preparation for this video after having seen it in the theater. And it wasn't until the second watching that even though I thought there were some pretty long dry spots, I really started to appreciate it even more and see some of the nuances 
and subtle themes embedded throughout really don't come up for me until multiple watchings. But I agree there were times when the movie felt kind of like, okay, is there a 1.2 speed on this movie to, you know, to get through? <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's really, really dark and, uh, you know, both visually and emotionally, I thought. But, you know, uh, you know, a decent addition, an important addition to the canon of Marvel. So one of the things we wanted to talk about is kind of what is the central question that each of these main characters that we're going to talk about here uh, wrestling with. And we're only going to touch on some of the characters we talked about last time, such as Captain America and um, uh, Tony Stark, uh, because we've already talked about them some in depth. And we're going to focus on Ultron, Vision, Wanda. But I'll tell you the one who caught my attention this time was Hawkeye and the importance of Hawkeye in this movie. Uh, before I go on about that, any thoughts about Hawkeye's role in this film? Well, for one thing, he spent the first film almost entirely under mind control. We didn't get to know him that much. And his role in the story was largely as an antagonist until he got conked on the head and broken of his mind control. And that was referenced specifically when Wanda tries to mind control him, but he gets her first and says, mind control, not a fan of it. And we get to find out more about who he is when he's not being a superhero, which was really yeah. interesting. Yeah. TJ and Gracia, any thoughts on Hawkeye? Yeah, I agree. I think he's an interesting character because he's not a superhero in the sense that he doesn't have any extra you know, supernatural abilities. But he's one of those characters. He's sort of like the gel that holds it together. You know, he's, he's not going to have the big starring role. As an archer myself, I can appreciate the uh, some of his <laughs> unbelievable, in the literal sense, some of the shots that he makes. Yeah, right. But he, he is kind of a, a glue that keeps the team together and uh, sort of fills in the gaps. For me, there was almost a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern quality to Hawkeye in this movie, right? Because he's, you know, as you said, he's not a superhero, right? He doesn't fly. He doesn't turn into, you know, the Hulk or anything like that. In fact, there's that great scene where he's trying to give uh, Wanda a pep talk and he says, look, we're on a flying city. We're fighting flying robots and I have a bow and arrow, you know, <laughs> you know, so there was just this really human quality to Hawkeye. So he sort of served as kind of a stand-in, but also the reason I brought up Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, for those people who might not uh, be familiar with, the, you know, who those characters are, they're kind of these walk-in characters in Hamlet, right, who are referred to but don't have any significant role. And the playwright Tom Stoppard wrote a play called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That was made into a movie with Gary Oldman and... Tim Roth. Tim Roth, thank you. Very good. And the idea being is that kind of who under other circumstances are very minor characters in their own story are the central characters. And I got that same feel regarding Hawkeye this time, especially in his conversation with his wife, who was telling him how important he was and, you know, that sort of thing. So I, so I just found that an interesting addition to the way these movies play out that was more nuanced than what you might expect. Thoughts on that? Uh, or, or did I say enough and we can move on from Hawkeye? I concur. Uh, he does have his own spinoff series called Hawkeye, which debuted on Disney Plus okay. earlier. Uh, it was last year sometime. And it's, it's all really good. I mean, if you enjoy him as a character, you'll enjoy the series. And what you said really builds on his significance within the Marvel comic universe in that he has never been a major character which right. is often the case with characters who are in these group 
you know, team hero books is it's right. a way to like bring in some lesser characters that the audience wouldn't necessarily buy a solo book of on their own. Like a lot of characters, he became a lot more popular when the movies became a phenomenon. And there's a wonderful run of Hawkeye comics written by Matt Fraction and drawn by David Asia. Just four volumes. And it's the TV show drew a lot from it. So you've got the Russian tracksuit mafia as some of the central villains. And they're very funny and they've got Pizza Dog as a character. And I highly recommend them to anybody who's curious to spend more time with Hawkeye as a character in the written form. All right. So um, so with with Ultron, there, there are some new characters introduced that are fairly compelling. So so let's uh, let's start off with the twins here, uh, Wanda and Pietro. And to sum up their characters, he's fast and she's weird. Um, so uh, as, as was said in the movie. So who, who wants to tell us about these two? I didn't get a super strong sense of them from this movie simply. Pietro dies at the end of this. So mm -hmm. that's a spoiler for anybody who hasn't had that spoiled already. So he's only in this one movie. Wanda appears in future Avengers movies, as well as Captain America Civil War, and then had the TV series WandaVision, which is her, and Vision, which takes place after the events of Phase 3 or whatever it is of the Marvel Universe where Vision died. And in that, he's brought back to life. And each episode is told within the structure of a different classic TV series in which she unknowingly is a central character. So what does that mean in terms of the Enneagram? If I had to guess, which I guess I do because this is what we're here to talk about, I would guess four in that she really places, first of all, stories mean a lot to her. And she places herself in them as a way to soothe herself and as a way to deal with the crushing grief of her dead beloved. She ends up falling for Vision, which is true with what happens with the characters in the comics. It, it does seem kind of strange to fall in love with an android, but hey, to each their own, and he is different, which would appear to uh, appeal to a four. And they really understand each other, and she is with him right to the moment that he dies, and she is devastated by it. And it seems never really recovers. TJ and Gracia, any thoughts on Wanda? I agree with your assessment as four. I think there's a sense of her embracing her pain. I mean, you talked about the grief, but the fours that I know are pain is their friend. They're, they're sort of a, instead of a moving away from, there's a moving into the pain, embracing it, feeling it, accepting it. And it seems like pain, personal pain is a, is a huge theme for her throughout the whole series. I, first of all, I agree with you guys. Um, you know, again, not the clearest cut uh, example. One of the things about this movie, it is so jam-packed with characters that there's really not a huge amount of character exposition in a consistent way, right? Or, you know, it's not like, say, Iron Man or Black Widow that's all about the, you know, the formation story of those characters. So you're kind of having to read between the lines. And I have not seen the WandaVision series, so I don't know that much about the character. But it did seem kind of four-ish to me. And her whole question was, who am I or what am I? And it was about this search for identity. And I would go a step further and say that I think the whole theme of this movie was kind of four-ish, right? That there was a darkness to it, right? There was this big question of identity and this question of becoming, 
All right. So for me, one of the things at the heart of the four is this idea of who am I and how do I express that? And what is the sort of evolution that happens in me as I understand myself more deeply and learn to express? And that was one of the themes in the movie, right? You remember when uh, I guess they were at Hawkeye's house and Banner looked at the picture of the butterfly and said, you know, uh, start talking about this idea of evolution. And even with Ultron, at the risk of jumping ahead, there was this idea, this, first of all, this world weariness that I often associate sort of with four. But again, it's this idea of who am I and how do I interact with the world? So I, I would say this is as close as any of the, um, the, the Marvel movies for me as kind of a four-ish themed movie. Let's see, with Pietro, you know, again, for for me, um, you know, not a particularly well-described uh, uh, character, uh, you know, interesting, but he does seem like, you know, sort of almost, I wouldn't say peripheral, but, you know, not a huge amount of character development there, so I don't have much of an opinion on him. So before we talk about Ultron and Vision, who are characters that I do want to spend a little bit of time on. What do we start to see in Natasha here? Any thoughts from you guys, since she is kind of the consistent theme of our podcast today? What do we start to observe about Natasha? This is the first film where we start to get a little more sense of her backstory. There's sort of some breadcrumbs in the previous films, but we actually start to see uh, she came from this place called the Red Room, where she was trained as an assassin from an early age. We get some flashbacks to that. For me, her question is more about who is my family? Who do I belong with? What is the group that I'm attached to? She has no family uh, from her childhood. And because of her forced sterilization as a child, she can't make a family of her own. And so her quest through this whole Marvel series is it's the family that she's trying to make for herself. And I think we start to see the beginnings of that really take shape in this film. Yeah, she also trained as a ballerina. They didn't mention that or show any clips of that in the Black Widow movie, but that is consistent with the backstory of the comics, is that she's both a ballerina and assassin, as well as a spy. And a lot of the physical agility of being a world-class dancer kind of plays into her kinetic acrobatic ability uh, with hand-to-hand combat that makes her so exceptional. And yeah, that is a big reveal. And that happens when Wanda glamours her. Uh, She glamours a number of the different characters in the Avengers, which causes them to kind of get lost in different ways to look at it. One is their deepest fear. Another is their their trauma. And her trauma in her case, as she mentions, is, or as you mentioned, TJ, is that she was sterilized and not by choice. And it's described as this was done to each of these spies trained through the Red Room program by the Russians so that they won't have any attachments so that there won't be anything more important than the next mission. So she was really molded into being this basically weapon, this device that could be thrown at any mission without any distractions, without any sense of like, you know, there's somebody I love that I want to get back to, or there's somebody that I've given birth to who could be kidnapped and leveraged against me. And she's finally coming to the sense of like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was my role for a long time. And now I can have some distance from that and look at it and think, am I just that? What might my life be if I'm not simply the great super spy and Avenger? Any sense from you guys on if we start to see a coherent Enneagram type in Natasha Romanoff in this movie? 
I think so. Yeah. What, what do you see, TJ? If I'm voting, my vote is squarely on Navigating 6 for her. In the Navigating 6, there seems to be this question of who am I in relation to the group? What is my group obligation? Sort of self-sacrifice for the sake of the group. I think we see a lot of that in her. Let me find here. I've got a couple of quotes from that wonderful book we referenced last time, Instinctual Leadership. Yeah, we should we should do a little call out there, huh? Okay, so just one quote here. Uh, Navigating sixes find security in the group, and they maintain their place in the group by being dutiful compatriots and foot soldiers for the cause. They want to know what is expected of them and work hard to satisfy the role. They also want to know the role of others in the group and can be suspicious of outsiders or people who have an unclear agenda. They rarely strive for leadership positions, but may find themselves recruited for such a role due to their hard work and dedication. And then just one quote here from uh, Russ Hudson's The Wisdom of the Enneagram. Uh, The social navigating sixes are most concerned about fitting in, their safety in numbers. They're fairly idealistic, enjoying feeling part of something larger than themselves, a cause or corporation or movement or group, and they're willing to make major sacrifices for the security of that affiliation. And personally, I feel like that's that's a perfect encapsulation of Natasha Romanoff. TJ Dahl, thoughts on that? Navigating three is my guess. Navigating three. So mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of navigating in terms of sensitivity to social nuance. Uh, one of her superpowers is deception. She reverse interrogates. That's something we see in the first movie, in The Avengers. She does that quite well twice. That's our introduction to her as a character in that movie is she's tied up and being beaten by some Russian general or someone like that. And she's actually extracting information from him while doing that. And then later she does that with Loki. And she also pulls a fast one on us, the audience, because we don't realize that's what's happening when she does that with Loki. Right. We see her do that a bit in the Black Widow movie with Drakov later when she's seemingly at his mercy, but she's playing him the entire time. And yes, she has a strong sense of like, who is my family? And the end of the Black Widow movie, she talks about how, you know, I spent my whole life thinking I didn't have a family. It turns out I have two. And one of them's not doing so well, so I'm going to try and get them back together. Uh, There's a number of scenes where she's bantering, too, where she's teasing and playing along with people. Uh, My sense of three is, first of all, like I said, deception. She's very good at deceiving. She's very cool. She's very smooth. She goes undercover. That's a big thing that she does in some of the other movies. When we first meet her in the Marvel Universe altogether, it's an Iron Man 2, and she's introduced as as an employee to Tony Stark with a false name, Natalie Rushman. And she can speak many languages fluently and reverse interrogation, playing people. She does that many, many times. We'll see that more in in the Black Widow movie. Uh, There's also proficiency. She is exceptionally good at what she does. She can hold her own with her physical combat abilities that she can fight alongside Thor and Iron Man and Captain America and the Hulk, staving off an alien invasion. And then there's the thing that I was describing of her confessing to Bruce Banner that she's been sterilized and that whole question of like, what if I wanted to have a family and I can't, what if I wanted to have a life outside of this seems very central to type three to me is like, I have been groomed to be this thing. I am very good at being this thing. I'm renowned for it. I'm successful at it. And yet, is that really who I am? Is that really what I do want to do with my life? And is there maybe more to me as a person than simply being the world's greatest super spy. Yeah, good. I like both of those responses. I think they're both well thought out and well argued. And uh, and I have to say, I don't have an opinion. 
<laughs> right. I mean, so mark this uh, this date here because uh, I don't know, believe there, it. Yeah, <laughs> there's something I, I don't have a a, a an enthusiastic opinion about uh, because the more I watched about this character, the more contradiction I saw, and um, not so much contradiction, but perhaps complexity. Also, you know, again, we've talked about how sometimes there are clashes between the character as written, the character as acted, and the temperament of the actor, him or herself. So I have not figured out why I can't land on uh, what character there is here. So, uh, so so I'm coming into a podcast about a character uh, that I have no opinion on at this point, but I think both of you guys make a good argument that's worth exploring. I see three stuff. I see six stuff. I see I see some eight stuff in certain places, right? Um, I don't think you can make a good argument that she's an eight, although that was my initial gut reaction uh, prior. But for me, this always illustrates that, um, you know, this can be challenging. Uh, we should hold our assessments lightly and uh, be open-minded about these things. So uh, not every movie character is uh, very clear. Let's move on to um, Ultron. Okay, himself, played by James Spader. Ultron was an interesting character to me because, as you said, it was a character that is sort of manufactured. It's artificial intelligence that takes a kind of robot form and gets into some interesting ideas regarding identity and um, intelligence, right? I mean, can an artificial intelligence have self-awareness, uh, which is the case here? And what would that look like? And what are the implications and dangers of such things? So I think these are relevant conversations to have. Ultron, to me, again, grew in interest over the rewatching of this because it was interesting to me to see the issues of identity that the character was struggling with. And again, for me, that kind of felt fourish in some ways, right? So this almost felt like a type four, you know, soulless uh, artificial intelligence based robot, uh, ironically. Uh, I don't know. Thoughts, reactions to that, guys? Type four. Ultron is a four. I'm just wrapping my brain around that. <laughs> my guess is five. Your guess is five. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of choice lines. Like, again, not super clear. Yeah, uh, yeah, not yeah. certainly not a five that I would use to teach people like here's what type five is like. But there was right. a, a great line where they're discovering that the vibranium infuses with organic matter to create this new body that eventually turns into vision. And Ultron says it's the most versatile substance on the planet. And they used it to make a Frisbee typical of humans. They scratch the surface and they never think to look within. That quote to me is pure five. There's the desire to look within and the utter disdain at the stupidity of the common person. That doesn't feel forish to you as well, TJ? I, what feels more <laughs> forish to me is if, is if they were to disdain people's commonness or lack of sensitivity, mm. lack of gotcha. depth, gotcha. lack of capacity. So it's about the intellect rather yeah. than, yeah, okay, gotcha. As well as he's got a pretty nihilistic sense of like the planet would be better if there were no, not only humans on it, but no living beings whatsoever. If the only living, and he says this, you know, after this, the only thing living in this world will be metal. And that seems like a kind of a gross exaggeration of an unhealthy five, of like very nihilistic, very disdainful of life and of there being goodness and a desire to live in a world that is all just simply 
function and solitude. Gotcha. TJ and Gracia. I got a pretty strong eight vibe from him. There's this theme of Pinocchio that sort of comes up a few times throughout the film and this idea of I have no strings on me. Ultron does not want to be controlled. There's a scene with uh, Andy Serkis, who's an arms dealer who Ultron gets the vibranium from. And when he meets Ultron, he makes the connection to Tony Stark and he says, you're one of Tony Stark's puppets. And this throws Ultron into a rage and he actually chops his arm off sort of on accident because he's so enraged he doesn't realize what he's doing. There's this sense that I'm my own person. No one will control me. I have my own power. And I think that's a pretty distinct eight feature. It's not even so much about the power, but it's about I will be my own person and I will not be controlled. Um, but I do, uh, Mario, now that you've raised this thing about four, I could see how some of it, it's like, is he getting upset because he wants to be not controlled and have his own power? Or is he upset because somebody associated him with Tony Stark and he wants to be unique? It's like, I'm my own person. I'm not just his creation. Um, so, you know, that's your, the wheels are turning now that you're saying yeah. that. I mean, if I had to vote, I'd probably still vote eight. But I think you both make good points. Well, there's no voting on this show. So uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, yeah, so it's interesting. So for me, the, um, um, and again, valid arguments and good discussion points. Uh, for me, it was the, the self-reflection and almost wallowing in a sense of identity that just didn't feel eight-ish to me. Right. Uh, eights don't spend a huge amount of time on self-reflection and who am I, you know, and, and that sort of thing, which for me was a lot of what was happening with Ultron. And he talked about this idea of evolution a lot, this idea of becoming, um, uh, you know, and uh, it, it actually made me think of the character of Francis Dollarhide in Manhunter. Right, the Tom Noonan character who was obsessed with the Blake painting and, you know, this idea of becoming something. So, you know, again, not clearly defined, not a great example of any particular Enneagram type, but I was really intrigued by that theme of evolution and becoming that was embodied in Ultron. All right, so, uh, and finally, we have the character of Vision. It took me about th at least three washings to figure out what the hell was going on with Vision, right? So, uh, and and I, I tell you, it brought out for me one of my frustrations with some of these movies is you're never really sure of the boundaries or capability of any of the characters' powers, right? So, th there are times when you think, well, why didn't he just snap his finger and make all these people disappear or something, right? Uh, you, you know, <laughs> kind kind of thing. Um, you know, and Vision was one of those characters for me that I couldn't quite wrap my head around what he was capable of and not but um tell us more about vision guys uh he was the good version of ultron basically uh i'm not sold on any particular type for him i think there's different elements uh, i think he has a similar kind of this existential thing of who am i ultron and vision are both like these offspring children of tony stark and they're both wrestling with who am i what is my place in this world so I can see some of that uh, yeah. four-ish kind of stuff that you talked about. He does have sort of a, a cerebral detachment, I would yes. say, a little bit. That yes. I could see some five-ish kind of stuff in there. That's the, the extent of anything yeah. useful I have to say about it. Yeah, yeah. Good points. Uh, uh, TJ Daw. 
I'm thinking either healthy five or healthy nine. He's got a really gentle demeanor. His yeah. speech, even at the height of battle, is always very calm, very soothing. You, you kind of get a non-judgmental is a strange thing to apply to a robot, but still. Uh, and then five, the fiveness of him came up particularly, I was kind of on the fence about that, like nine, five, not quite sure. And then there's the final confrontation between himself and Ultron. And there's a bit of dialogue that they have. He says, humans are odd. They think order and chaos are somehow opposites and try to control what won't be. But their grace is in their failings. And Ultron says, they're doomed. And Vision says, yes. But a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. It's a privilege to be among them. And Ultron yeah. responds, you're unbearably naive. And he says, well, I was born yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that was a great line. The accusation of unbearable naivete seems very five to me. And the whole line of a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts uh, reminded me of something that Russ Hudson teaches about non-attachment as the virtue for type five, which is yeah. exactly that, which isn't detachment, yes. which is what fives are notorious for, but yes. non-attachment, which is the sense that nothing lasts, which doesn't mean that it's to be disdained. It actually means it's precious and you value it more knowing how temporal everything is. Yeah, good points. I kind of saw a vision as a five-ish sort of character as well. Um, for those points that you're talking about, that healthy non-attachment, that uh, cerebral sort of quality, but a, 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 I'll call it a clear cerebral um, uh, perspective, right? Meaning that, uh, you know, it wasn't an escape into the head uh, as fives can be guilty of, but it was a good uh, version of what healthy discernment looks like. Okay, so uh, I, I saw a lot of that. The other thing that I'm still trying to wrap my head around are the theological themes that popped up a few times throughout this movie, particularly related to vision and earlier Jarvis, right? So one of the things that caught my attention on my most recent watching was the bumper sticker that said Jarvis is my co-pilot or my co-pilot is Jarvis or something, right? I caught that as well. Yeah. Okay. So, so there was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then when Jarvis kind of makes his, I'm sorry, not Jarvis, uh, when Vision makes his entry or at some point they say, you know, who are you? And he says something to the effect of, uh, I am not Ultron. I am not uh, Jarvis. I am right and ooh, okay that's a pretty you know that, that's pretty on the nose that's that's pretty old testament kind of stuff and new testament kind of stuff right because there's a passage when they you know they they asked jesus you know who sent you and he said you know tell them i am that i am sent me and they were gonna you know stone him for that because it was considered blasphemous right so um so it was intriguing to me that there were these embedded references to god in the character I agree, and I'd say some of that stuff popped up uh, for Ultron as well. Uh, the scene when the twins first meet him in the center of the city, uh, he's sitting in a seat in the center of a church, and yes. he says, did you know that this church is in the exact center of the city? The elders decreed it so that everyone could be equally close to God. I like that, the geometry of belief. Yes. And then there's a reference later uh, when they find out that he is going to create this extinction-level event— and they say something about who's going to survive, and he makes some reference to Noah, basically, and the end of the earth, and only a few people surviving. And there was there were a few other things like that. That there's it was a very biblical theme throughout the whole film. Yeah, T.J. Daw. 
Nothing to add. That's all good. <laughs> okay. You leave the scripture to me and TJ, is that what, you're, what I'm hearing? <laughs> so, uh, um, so uh, good. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, you can't help but escape the theological concepts in all these superhero movies, right? I mean, we have, you know, demigods and, you know, people with certainly what would seem like supernatural powers and so forth. So, uh, but this struck to me as particularly Judeo-Christian in execution here. All right. Okay. So uh, any other comments or uh, anything else about the Avengers Age of Ultron that we should discuss before we move on? I'd just like to recognize the what's standard in all of the Marvel movies, the Stan Lee cameo. Yeah. Stan Lee is the <laughs> recently died, but he was the figurehead of Marvel Comics, the co-originator of Marvel Comics. And he always has a cameo, always has a different character. And this one, he plays a, a World War II vet who's part of the party, which I thought yes. was a wonderful scene, actually, you know, within the theme that we've talked about, about the Avengers as a team and can they get along? Can they m find a way to make this work? One of the yeah. things we see is this scene when they're just having fun together. Yes. They're having a celebration and they're all getting along. You know, there's no kind of like backhanded power games, although there might be a little bit with the, with everybody attempting to lift Thor's hammer. Right. But uh, Stan Lee kind of steps up when Thor has this tiny little vessel that contains this thousand-year-old alcoholic liquid and drinks a couple drops of it and then is carried out muttering the word Excelsior, which was always his sign-off <laughs> when he would write to the to respond to readers' letters in Marvel Comics. It's kind of his oh, really? his catchphrase yeah. or his catchword, I suppose. So that was a nice wink to the fans. Okay, so uh, Age of Ultron, again, interesting movie. I, For me, um, again, not one of the better, but uh, a thoughtful movie with some interesting themes, even if they're not fully you know, drawn out. Although I think, again, they're within context, you certainly get more of an appreciation of them. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds, or our certification programs, visit me at mariosakura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. So we're going to talk about our next movie. Uh, 2021's Black Widow, uh, starring Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanov. And it's in this movie that we start to get to learn more about this character. Actually, we get the whole backstory and uh, introducing some other characters as well. This film was released in 2021 and was kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't know if the infamous is quite the right word, or but there was some controversy around it because it was one of the first big budget movies to be released in the theaters in the COVID era. And also it was streamed at the same time, which uh, led to a lawsuit between Scarlett Johansson and Disney. Pretty well received movie, pretty successful movie, if not the same kind of numbers, even as Ultron did in some of the other movies. Um, I liked Black Widow. 
Uh, I had heard from people that, uh, you know, whose judgment I generally trust that it wasn't that good a movie. And so I did, I did only watched it on an airplane uh, to, uh, I was actually coming back from Doha. So I had a huge amount of time on my hands, 14 hours in the air, and I watched Black Widow and really, really liked it. Tell us about the movie, TJ Dahl. Yeah, so this takes place primarily in, the, in 2016. So before the events of Avengers Infinity War and Endgame and after Captain America Civil War. So the story starts in Ohio in 1995 when Natasha was 11 years old, living with her younger sister and her parents, who it's revealed are all deep cover Russian spies, and they get called back. The father, Alexei, is played by David Harbour, who's best known for Stranger Things, and the mother, Melina, is Rachel Wise, and they're not actually married. So very much like the TV show The Americans, where there's deep cover Russian agents in America who speak English to each other, even in private, and whose own kids don't know who they really are. So the family, which was never a real family, is separated. Natasha had trained in the Red Room, and her younger sister's headed there, and then we jump ahead 21 years, and now Natasha's on the run from the fallout of the events of Captain America's Civil War. Her sister reaches out to her after being deprogrammed as a Black Widow by being sprayed in the face with some sparkly red gas antidote, which we discover uh, Black Widow isn't just the name of a single superhero. It's a rank of elite young female Russian assassins trained in the Red Room whose location is unknown, and they're supervised by General Drakov played by Ray Winstone, who had supposedly been killed by Natasha when she deflected to S.H.I.E.L.D. years before. So the two rescue their father from a Russian prison, and it's revealed that he's the former Red Guardian, the Russian equivalent to Captain America. And he's got a super soldier's accelerated strength and agility, even though he's past his prime. And then they find their mother, Melina, who's a scientist who had designed the brain programming that's used on the Black Widows. So the four of them go to take down General Drakov and the Red Room, which leads them to Drakov's giant flying base, which they do take down, crashing the base on the ground, killing Drakov as they go, Natasha having to fight all the Black Widows at once in one scene, and then having a climactic one-on-one fight with Taskmaster, who is Drakov's armored-up super-assassin daughter who can perfectly imitate anybody's flying abilities simply by watching them. The two of them fight on the base as they fall through the air, on the ground as they land, And the fight's eventually resolved when Natasha sprays Taskmaster in the face with the antidote, releasing her from their programming. So then Yelena has freed all of the other Black Widows, and they're free to go about their lives and make their own choices, as Natasha says. And the family is reunited, and then Natasha stays there for a reason I didn't quite understand as I was watching it, as General Ross, who's been hunting her, closes in, even though the rest are able to escape in a convenient plane that lands to take them away. (laughs) But Natasha supposedly escapes from prison and is free a mere two weeks later, because that's just how good she is. All right, great. So for me, again, uh, I enjoyed this movie. I think partly it's because I went in uh, with fairly low expectations, and so they were exceeded. What struck me about this movie is that the main character may have been the least interesting character in the movie from my perspective right uh, i'm a big scarlett johansson fan okay i think she's a good a very good actress but she wasn't that compelling a character to me here this movie was stolen by florence Pugh playing her sister yelena i felt and by the the guy that played her father david harbour who i thought was just fun 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 to watch during this movie thoughts on that guys 
I agree. Yeah, that's why I love this movie so much because of the interplay of all these characters, uh, specifically the back and forth between Black Widow and her sister Yelena, you know, Scarlett Johansson and Florence Pugh, just sort of their dialogue, constantly ribbing each other. I like Yelena's very dry, very dark sense of humor. Just, yeah, the whole thing worked for me. Yeah, a really great moment I thought was when Yelena asks Natasha why she always does that heroic pose where she lands with one leg out and flips her hair back. Bit of trivia there. That came from Florence Pugh actually teasing Scarlett Johansson about that on set. Oh, really? And the director liked it so much they just gave it to the characters. <laughs> it's funny because I, uh, after watching Black Widow, I noticed that uh, because Tony Stark did it a number of times in Iron Man as well, right? That's kind of his landing. And so it is this sort of superhero landing pose. And uh, I, I thought it was just great the way that Florence Pugh made fun of it throughout the movie. The uh, character David Harbour, uh, who plays Alexi, her father, I thought too, was great for comic relief, but not simply buffoonery, right? I felt that he was a character who was there for comic relief, but also drove the plot forward in interesting ways and was a compelling character to watch. And I'll explain why I thought it was compelling when we talk about the Enneagram type of that character or my interpretation thereof. Um, but uh, before we start talking about the uh, individual characters, any comments on the movie in general or other characters we should talk about? I saw an overarching threeness in the entire movie. Like I said, there's layers of deception. And just to go through what some of those are, at the very beginning, there's the fact that the family's living undercover in the United States and their identity is kept secret even from Yelena herself. There's Natasha's switcheroo on General Ross and the audience in an opening scene where he seems to be closing in on her and they raid this bathroom that through the editing, we too are meant to believe that she's hiding in when in fact she's on a ferry in Norway, like far, far away. There's Natasha and Melina having their faces kind of masked as each other when they go into the floating base. And their plan isn't even revealed to Yelena and Alexei, much less to the audience. It's one of those heist movies, I suppose, where yeah, the audience- There's a bit of Mission Impossible going on there. A bit yeah. of Mission Impossible, I think, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then there's the fact that they had anticipated that General Drakov will see through their plan. And that's also part of their plan. So that even as Drakov has supposedly got the upper hand on Natasha, she's pumping him for information the entire time. And that's all part of her plan. And then there's the fact that Drakov had faked his own death, fooling everyone, including Natasha. And the fact that the flying base is secret. It's impossible to find even for the Black Widows who were raised in it, who they themselves don't know where it is or that it's a floating base. So many, 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 many layers of deception there. And then there's a lot of proficiency. Like uh, at one point, the dad, when he's talking to his two daughters, refers to Yelena as having been the best child assassin in the world. I think there's a strong possibility that Melina is also a three in that she is also very good at what she does. And she's very good at understanding what makes people tick and using that for her own ends. And that she's turns on Drakov. She's supposedly a loyal soldier to him, but turns on a dime to help bring the whole thing down. And then for me, ultimately, there was, you know, I mentioned before, I thought the movie was pretty good, but it didn't touch me in the heart, which seemed a little three-ish as well. In terms of the ingredients are all there, it is definitely well done. The stunt work is incredible, whether we're talking hand-to-hand -hand combat or chase scenes, like top of the line, maybe some of the best I've ever seen. And yet, I didn't particularly get emotionally involved with the characters. 
I thought it was technically excellently done. And but felt a little bit soulless. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you, I use that, uh, that, that, that term specifically because I remember being at a conference, an Enneagram conference in South America, and an Enneagram teacher there said to me, you know, I don't think threes have souls. What do you think? <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, no, come on. Um, you know, I think they have just as much a soul as anybody else. Um, and I want to be very careful here with your comments about deception, TJ, because I completely agree with what you're saying. And we don't want to give the impression that threes are uh, false or liars or, you know, that sort of thing. For me, it's more a matter of appearances, right? It's a matter of presenting appearances. And, um, you know, the, the deceit associated with type three is about believing the false self, right? Believing the image. And yes, sometimes that manifests as deception and fraudulence, okay, in unhealthy threes. And other times it is about positioning in a lot of ways, right? So marketing is a very three-ish sort of endeavor in that way, okay? But I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think that's a great insight because I couldn't quite put my finger on you know, what I was picking up about this movie, but I think you hit it on the head. It's all about excellence and becoming awesome at something, developing oneself, you know, and so forth. So improvement again, but in a different way, it was not that sort of evolutionary improvement that was talked about in Ultron, but more of a manufactured step-by-step -step improvement of, you know, training to become the best, etc. Uh, so re really good insight there. Uh, TJ Ingracia, any thoughts on that before we start talking about specific characters? Well, I guess this is the first time that I've ever been the lone person to have an emotional uh, connection with type three. <laughs> Normally they're my kryptonite, but uh, yeah, just something about it worked for me this yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. Again, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm somewhere in between the two of you on what I, uh, I thought about this movie. I, I really liked it. What I really enjoyed was the humor, the self-effacing um, uh, kind of humor. And, you know, and now as I'm saying this, it's kind of the thing that I always enjoy about an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, that he's kind of in on the joke, right? Schwarzenegger, in my view, is a classic, classic transmitting three. Right. I mean, he's just, I am going to be the best in anything I do, and I'm going to let everybody know about it, but I'm going to do it with a wink because I get the joke. Right. I know that I'm playing a character and I know that I'm creating an image. And so I felt a little bit of that in this movie as well. Right. It's like we're kind of in on the joke here. And so even though there were a lot of three ish themes, I don't think that every character was a three by any stretch, right? Um, and this goes to show us that the themes that are often captured in a movie, if we go to Ultron, is what does it mean to be, right? What does it mean to, you know, find identity? Each of the Enneagram types will find that or wrestle with that question in their own sort of way, right? Which takes me to Alexi, because I'm going to throw out a hypothesis on the character Alexi. First of all, shout out to my son, Alexi, um, here, who will never listen to this podcast because he thinks I'm just an old dork with nothing to say. But, you know, that's my issue. Um, so, <laughs> but, uh, but Alexi, if you listen to the words, and I imagine if you read it, would have been pure three. But 
it was a seven-ish character in my view. I saw that character as a seven, right? He was just uh, always, you know, getting excited about stuff, you know? Oh, you're going to go on to kill so many people, you know, kind of things, right? You know, and, uh, you know? and uh, all of these, you know, he was just, he was just joy unbound, right? Uh, in, in a lot of ways, even though he was talking about killing people. Reactions to that. I agree. My initial take on him was as an eight, because he uh -huh. loves being powerful. He loves being yeah. the Red Guardian, the super soldier. And when one of the first scenes where, well, there's the early scenes in Ohio, but then when we meet him again yeah. in the present day of the movie, he's in prison and he's winning one wrestling match after another with prisoners. <laughs> arm wrestling. Yes, yeah, arm that, wrestling. that's right. One arm wrestling match. But he's telling stories of his exploits, which are patently false. And I just can't picture an eight doing that. So yeah, I, I do see him as a seven very much. And even though he he's a buffoonish character without simply being there for comic relief, he is important right. to the plot. But it's harder for me to imagine an eight, or now that you mentioned a three, as buffoonish. It just it didn't quite fit. Uh, he loves his stories of his glory days. He he blatantly says that he hated being undercover in Ohio. It was so boring just being yes. undercover as this dad who went to a job. And then there was this one line where he pontificates. He doesn't even know why he was thrown in prison. He might have, you know, insulted the general's <laughs> hairpiece, or maybe it was. He says maybe it's because I wanted the party to feel more like an actual party. Yes, yes, yes. Talking about the Communist well. Party. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It felt kind of sevenish, right? Um, yeah, it's uh, you know, and also because the character was probably a transmitting seven, it shows that. Again, a lot of characteristics that fall into that come from the transmitting instinctual bias can look kind of three-ish, right? It's that need to be recognized, right? It's that need to shine. And even though that's something we associate with threes, it's something that we see in lots of transmitters, right? Of I I'm a peacock and I, you know, I I, I want to be recognized. Okay? I love wearing my costume. Everybody take a look. I'm the Red Guardian. I'm back. <laughs> Even though I put on a few extra pounds since the yeah. last time I wore it. Which he really did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, again, be, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, he's constantly squeezing into this costume that uh, had his better days. Uh, recently, my uh, my wife and I were attending a, a ball, right, of all things. And uh, uh, she said to me, you know, we were discussing what I would wear. And she said, well, why don't you wear your tux from our wedding? That was 20 years ago, and so it, it, we could have had another Red Guardian sort of moment there had I attempted that. So uh, anyway. <laughs> All right. So so that's Alexi. Um, the, um, I'm saving my favorite character for last. So um, the, the wife's name, uh, Rachel Weiss's character, Melina. Thoughts on her? I think uh, one of you guys said that that was kind of a three-ish character as well. Yeah, that's my take on her. I got a very five-ish vibe from her. You know, just sort of the stereotypical scientist working alone, detached, far away from other people. She seems to have a, a recurring emotional detachment throughout the film. Uh, at one point, there's the dinner scene where they're all together as a family for the first time in 20 years. You know, I'm, you can see I'm using air family in air quotes here. Right. Uh, one of them uses the word family, and Melina says. Seeing as our family construct was just a calculated ruse that only lasted three years, I don't think we can use that term anymore, can we? Just in a very deadpan kind of way. Part of her scientific research is uh, doing mind control on pigs that she raises. She names one of the pigs after Alexi, and there's a funny moment 
where, you know, he says, you named a pig after me? And she just deadpan looks at him and says, you don't see the resemblance? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I got kind of more of a five-ish detached vibe from her. And then yeah. at the press of a button, she causes that pig to stop breathing and fall over. And then she keeps on with this lucid explanation of what she was able to do as a scientist before it takes prodding from Natasha for her to reactivate the pig's ability to breathe and go on living. Yeah. At which point she says, oh, he would have been fine for another eight seconds or, or something like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because the first time I watched it, I got sort of a one-ish quality, particularly in the scene where they first re-engage with her in the kitchen. But I, I agree that uh, kind of felt more five-ish. Um, as I watched it. It also felt to me kind of like that character had changed significantly between the scenes when she was the young mother to the latter scenes. It almost seemed like, wait, this is two different people almost, right? Um, certainly, for me, felt kind of a five-ish character. I said I was going to save the best for last, so actually I want to introduce one more before we talk about Yelena, the Ray Winstone character, General Drakoff. I want to start off by saying I am a huge, huge Ray Winstone fan. The Departed, he was amazing in The Departed. Sexy Beast with um, oh, the guy that played Gandhi. Uh, <laughs> with, yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you know, Sexy Beast, he was fantastic in that. Uh, now, I don't think this was Ray Winstone's best performance, but I'm a big fan of his. Um, thoughts about Drakoff, guys? I think Ray Winstone's, you know, it's not a surprise to me that you love him. I think he's one of those actors, like we mentioned before, Samuel L. Jackson being one of them, where it's kind of hard to see him as anything other than an eight. <laughs> I think he just transmits so much grounded power yeah. that that's infused with every moment that he's on screen, whether he's doing something specifically eight-ish in that moment or not. Yeah. And I think the character itself, even if it had been played by somebody else, is also a really good example of a transmitting eight. Yeah. He's all about holding the power and really wanting to steer the world. That's what he reveals. He uses his army, his network of Black Widows for is to bring down kings, to topple kingdoms, to really control the world. And now he wants to have an Avenger under his power. Yeah. TJ Ingracia? Yeah, I totally agree. I actually found a quote from the screenwriter, Eric Pearson, uh, describing this character. And he described him as a coward who is puppeteering things from the shadows and does not care about hurting others. And that's <laughs> that's an unhealthy eight right there. And that's why I love him. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm in agreement with both of you guys here, uh, and I would agree, TJ Dahl, that I can't, I can't think of a role in which uh, um, Ray Winstone played anything other than an eight, uh, even though he seemed meek and mild in Sexy Beast compared to the insane eight of Ben Kingsley. Have you guys seen that movie? Do you, do you know Sexy Beast? Wonderful yeah. movie. Uh, yeah, re really, really good movie, and for me, one of Ben Kingsley's most interesting uh, and moving um, uh, performances. In The Departed, Ray Winstone plays a great character. He plays Jack Nicholson's henchman. And the classic line, you know, when he's uh, meeting with Leonardo DiCaprio, he says, uh, you, you know, uh, I'm the guy who decides who you can hit and who you can't, uh, sort of thing. So clearly an eightish character. Agreed, Dra Drakeoff. You know, an out-of-control eight wanting to control the world and exert his power. Even this idea that, you know, the Red Room is up in the sky, right? So it's lording over the whole planet, right, from this perspective, you know. And um, so clearly a type A character. So 
Let's move on uh, to uh, who, for me, was uh, the most interesting and uh, enjoyable character in the in the film. Uh, but I think uh, Yelena, for me, was um, the highlight of this movie. More interesting than the Natasha character. Uh, more entertaining. Thoughts on Yelena, guys? Agreed. <laughs> She's really interesting and entertaining. Uh, I didn't get a super fleshed out sense of her personality. Like there's a lot of function. There's a lot of her doing her thing and her being reawakened from her brain programming. So there's an essential difference in the way Natasha was trained and where she was trained in that her actual brain was programmed to be a black widow. So that at one point she talks about how she doesn't really know which part is herself and which part is her programming. And when she's blasted in the face with the antidote gas, which she then, that wakes her up. Suddenly she's free of her programming. And then she commits herself to waking up the other widows. That stood out to me as a really interesting symbol of threeness, of how we're all programmed to one degree or another. We get information from our parents, from our peer group, from society at large of this is the way to be. This is what's expected of you. This is the way that you can be valuable. And some part of us absorbs that, no matter how much we like to think that we're not. And part of the work of maturing is learning to separate ourselves from those voices and learning to say, okay, what's my programming and what's actually me? And when we can settle into what's actually me, that can change a person's life, which of course in this movie is done in a symbolic and fantastical way, you know, on a large scale in this kind of James Bond-esque spy scale. And yeah, her, the course of her entire life has changed. And she reaches out to her sister and helps reassemble her family and brings down this unjust system. I agree that there's not a strong Enneagram type, not as strong as Dreykov, let's say. I did get sort of a healthy eight-ish kind of vibe from her, wanting to go back. You know, she got freed from the program, so now she wants to go back and act justice and free the rest of the widows from the same program. They're both spies. They're both assassins. I think Natasha would stab you in the back. Yelena would stab you in the front. She's not going to be sneaky about it. She'll just come up and do it. When her and Natasha rescue their quote-unquote father, Alexei, from prison, and the first time uh, that they see him, he gets into the helicopter, he starts to thank them, and she punches him right in the face because she's so upset with him for abandoning her 20 years ago. But beyond that, yeah, I agree that there's not a whole lot of specifics, but that's just sort of the vibe that I got. Yeah. So I would agree with that. Uh, for me, the character resonated as a navigating eight. And um, and TJ Dahl, what you were saying about identity, I completely agree with. I agree that that was the theme of this movie, that almost everybody was wrestling with some sense of identity and discovering who I really am and how do I be the best version of that. And uh, like we said with the Alexi character, he was coming at that question from a seven-ish sort of angle. And I think Elena was coming at it from a for me, a navigating eight sort of angle of who am I? What do I do when I realize that I'm not who I thought I was? Okay. And how do I go about reconstructing that? And to TJ and Gracia's point, okay, I'm going to go and get justice. 
Right? That's my way of establishing some sense of identity by putting things right, by punishing those who deserve to be punished and rescuing those who need to be rescued. Um, I think there was, you know, again, not a pitch perfect performance or uh, a version of that character, but there was a lot of this kind of self-effacing, but not really fun poking at herself, right? There was this gentle and sometimes not so gentle ribbing of others to establish don't feel too big of yourself because I'm bigger than you are and you know but uh, I'm not going to completely lord it over you like Drakoff would so you know for me there was there was a lot of kind of navigating eightish stuff in that character there was also the scene when they've just rescued the father and he asks if she's on her period to explain <laughs> why he she just punched him in the face. And then she goes into a graphic medical description of the details of her own hysterectomy, which gets the father saying, okay, okay, okay. It starts grossing him out. And she keeps on going. Which and and makes it more hate. and more graphic as she goes, right? Yeah. Because it's like, I have found your weakness here and I'm going to poke my finger at it, right? So, uh, And I yeah. am who I am. <laughs> and this is my body. And these are the grisly details. And, oh, you can't take it? Well, right. I sure can. <laughs> yeah, very good point. That was a funny scene. Um, and the, the, I loved the vest story, too. It's so practical, you know, you can carry things. Uh, anyway, uh, for, for, for me, the, um, the, the standout performance of the movie. Um, so, uh, all right, good. Any other comments on Black Widow? couple other things I wanted to bring up. One is Taskmaster, who again is even less of a character than some of the characters we've been talking about. I don't think she has a single line in the movie. And for most of her performance, we don't even see her face. She's in this elaborate suit of armor with a mask and helmet. Uh, yet again, I see that as very much a three symbol. She's all function. She has no autonomy. She's a Terminator, basically. And something Tom Condon had said in the Enneagram movie and video guide was that Schwarzenegger's performance as the Terminator not to put too fine a point on it, is very much a symbol of a three. I'm mm. all function. I'm all business. Yes. Direct me yes. at what I'm supposed to do. And yes. then, of course, the climax for her character is getting the antidote and suddenly being awakened. And shortly after that, that's when the, the plane lands with all the other Black Widows who have just been freed. And it might be the final line of the movie or one of them where they say to Natasha, what do we do now? And she says, you're free now. You can make your own choices, which, again, is just a beautiful moment to address that overall theme of being programmed versus actually having autonomy. Uh, let, let me comment on that, uh, TJ, if, if I could, because I think that's a really, really good point, a good observation. Um, so the, the kind of central issues for the three is loss of contact with inherent value. Okay. Um, inherent value independent of accomplishment. Okay. So we're all born with this quality, what I call the core quality of value that, um, we don't have to do anything to be considered value. We just are. And the core message of the three, the sort of distorting message is no, you have to sing for your supper. You have to perform in order to find value. And it's always frustrating because no matter how well they perform, they never feel like they capture that core value, right? So there's always this performance. And the way back to that is by kind of stepping back and establishing a sense of purpose, right? Identifying what is it I'm going to live my life for? How do I answer that existential question? Not of who am I, but of why am I? 
Okay. And uh, what am I going to devote myself to? And it's through that devotion to something that helps them not just do everything, not try to be everything to everyone, but to establish their own sense of identity as a worthy human being. Okay. And that final point that you made about you have freedom to do to, to be who you want to be or to do what you want to do. That is kind of the key moment for a three of, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to live up to other people's expectations, but I get to decide what brings value and what brings worth and live my life according to that. So a, a very good observation. And the thing that I choose to do might not be prestigious, at least according to the values that I grew up with, but they fill me with a sense of purpose and fulfillment and they make the world a better place and they make me genuinely happier than all the things that I got all the accolades for before. Okay, guys, on that note, um, I think we come to the end of our uh, episode today, our conversation about these two movies. Uh, again, not the greatest of the Marvel uh, comic universe movies, but serviceable entertainment. And I think on reflection and careful watching, some very thoughtful themes come through to help us think about purpose and identity, um, you know, through these films. Uh, so, uh, with that, we will wrap up TJ and TJ. Thank you for an enlightening and engaging conversation as always. And what do we have up next? What movies are we going to talk about next? We're going to be looking at Captain America, specifically through the movie Captain America, the First Avenger and Captain America Civil War. Good. Looking forward to that. Civil War is one of my favorite in the series. I thought it was a movie that worked really well. So I'm looking forward to rewatching that and talking about it next time. Okay, guys, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.